I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. Viral blizzard of Omicron? Down on the range, that looks like a dust storm of herd immunity. It's high noon for Tuesday, December 21st, 2021. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator or join the discussion thread at t.me slash I'm reasonable. You can also find me on Gab and Getter at I'm your moderator. The Substack is I'm your moderator.substack.com and the merch site is cancelcotour.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. And before we get started, I just want to thank everybody who signed up for subscriptions on anchor.fm slash I'm your moderator yesterday and everybody who has supported and contributed in other ways. It really means a lot and it really does help support me and the time I take to make this show happen. So thank you. Today is the 335th day of Barack Obama's third term as served by the half dead, demented, degenerate, ventriloquist dummy, fake proxy president Joe Biden, who is overwhelmingly compromised by the Chinese Communist Party, the patriarch of one of the most corrupt families in American history and the father of one of the most despicable sons to ever walk the earth. That's Hunter Biden. So congratulations, commies. You did everything the TV told you certain that you would reap all the rewards the TV promised you. And you didn't listen to crazy people like me, you know, the conspiracy theorists, and good for you. What an incredible world you have helped build through your very serious thoughtfulness and your extreme responsibility to your community. You never wavered in your commitment to all of the tenets of the very smart people's creed as told to you by such luminaries as Chris Cuomo and Rachel Maddow and Dr. Anthony Fauci and, of course, the master of the universe, Bill Gates. You vaxxed up and masked up and you voted for Joe Biden along with 30% of the rest of the country. And then you made sure to say that everyone who could see that there was no way in the world Joe Biden got 81 million real legal American votes was crazy and just trying to tear down that same American democracy that you've done so much to build. But hey, commies, I hate to be the bearer of bad news. And by bad news, I mean anything that you haven't approved of hearing before you actually hear it. Because I know how scary it is to occasionally be surprised with words you weren't expecting. Takes you right out of your safe space. But the thing is, last April 2020, this is over a year and a half ago now, I said on this podcast and in writing and to people in life, in the world, that the commitment by the media 
to interpreting everything that happened with a pandemic, a global pandemic, interpreting all of that through a lens of whether it would help or hurt Donald Trump would eventually be the end of the media. And after that, the end of the Democrat Party. All right. And I said that because it was obvious to me at the time that that was a dead end. Okay. Even if Donald Trump was the evil person they were pretending, interpreting reality through whether or not it hurt Donald Trump was not ultimately a path toward a truth that could map onto reality. And of course, it hasn't been. It hasn't been anywhere close to that. And people are waking up to that fact now. And when they do wake up to that fact, they're going to have thoughts like, oh, wait, these people lied to us about a pandemic? And I say that at the end of every episode because it really is an almost unbelievable proposition. Something so important or something we are told is so important as a global pandemic, which we are told happened, is not something you can lie about indefinitely and assume no one's ever going to find out and no one's ever going to hold you accountable. And they did this having already spent the five years prior lying about Donald Trump and all his supporters. And those lies held up pretty well for a time. And now they don't hold up at all anymore. And the media is no longer seen as a responsible and serious and honest arbiter of truth, a reporter of facts, a resource for understanding. Now they're only seen for what they are, state media propagandists. And if you're the sort of person who's realizing that, I suggest you just let it all go. Stop paying attention to anything they say. Understand that the best route to knowing what's true in our society right now is to figure out what the media is trying to convince you of and assume that the opposite is true. You will find that you are right almost all the time because the reality for them relative to their goals is so bad. And so inconvenient that their entire purpose is to convince you of a reality that simply does not exist. They are at all times trying to convince you of a reality that exists only in their imaginations. And as more and more of the country wakes up to this fact, these people become more and more desperate to avoid it because they made a very very bad bet on their ability through the media and through big tech and through censorship that the imaginary world was real for at least as much time as it takes to implement the entire global reset agenda, except they're not getting the agenda passed and they've already missed the boat on convincing the entire public of the story. It's impossible now. People don't believe them anymore. And if you're one of those people, all you have to do is get rid of those last 
stupid and evil communist ideas and migrate back to America. Just make amends with all the people you have shamed and bullied and slandered and censored and tried to get fired from their jobs and come on back. We will accept you with open arms because we want more Americans involved in the project of America, the project of human liberty and self-governance. And with that, I would love to extend a warm Tuesday high noon welcome to all of the redeemable communists out there. Hello, commies. Happy Christmas week, commies. I know things aren't really going how you planned, but hey, I tried to warn you. I've been trying to warn you every day for almost two years. And the prediction I made last April about the total collapse of the media and with it, the Democrat Party. Well, I'm not the only one thinking it anymore. Here's Tucker Carlson last night. It turns out Democrats are exactly what they appear to be. They're the party of neurotic, personally unsatisfied white ladies who live in the suburbs. You know those preachy little signs you see on the lawns of affluent neighborhoods telling you how the people who live inside love BLM and support Tony Fauci? That's the real Democratic Party. It's not a national political party. It's a professional class cultural movement that is highly unappealing to normal people. In a functioning democratic system, people with those little signs in their lawns would never be allowed to run anything because nobody likes them. The advisors around Joe Biden understand this perfectly well. If these new polling numbers are right, even if they're just sort of right, this is the end of the Democratic Party as a governing majority. It's bewildering to think that. But political parties like markets often seem strongest right before they collapsed. The problem is, at this moment, the Democratic Party is still in power, and that's a very bad combination for the rest of us. Regimes in decline tend to become dangerous. As they weaken, they get increasingly desperate and ruthless. They've been rejected by voters. Democracy doesn't work for them anymore. That means they can no longer operate within democratic boundaries and hope to stay in power. So inevitably, they swerve outside those boundaries. Instead of trying to convince the public to support them, that's democracy, they invent domestic enemies and national panics to keep themselves in charge. And that's exactly what we're watching happen right now. And of course, he's correct. The Democrat Party, as it exists now, with the illegitimate president and vice president and who knows how many illegitimate members in the Congress, in the Senate, how many illegitimate bureaucrats appointed by Democrat administrations are in the government right now pretending to run things. These people are all now staring at the end of their political careers. And we're talking about people who just over a year ago were declared the winners of their fraudulent elections, which is the result that they expected. It was the result they were promised. They knew what system was in place. We can't imagine that people who are in professional politics are as clueless about election fraud as your average Biden voter. These people were part of a permanently entrenched political class that would hold power for as long as they chose to until they got a better offer as a lobbyist or as a member of an executive board of a corrupt corporation. But now they're reaping exactly what they've sown and they are failing to even deliver what they were supposed to deliver to the people who put them in power. Build Back Better is collapsing, has collapsed for all intents and purposes, at least right now, 
Maybe they'll try to revive it in a few months, but I kind of doubt it. So they have failed their benefactors, the people that run the election fraud system, the people who pick and choose which politicians will pretend to govern the country. And they know they have no chance of winning elections based on actually convincing people to vote for them. So they've moved on to trying to completely take over the election apparatus by nationalizing elections, by legalizing ballot harvesting, by making unsolicited mail-in balloting a thing everywhere, all across the country, and by banning things like voter ID because they call it racist, even though 80 plus percent of black Americans support voter ID. And prior to the pandemic period, all of this stuff would have been a speed bump for them. It would have been an obstacle. It would have been an annoyance. But the media would have helped them by providing a series of narratives that would have convinced the public that what these people are doing isn't that bad and it would probably be okay. And you know what? Regardless, nothing is really going to change. So just vote for the right team and we'll just keep on going. They'll just pay off whoever needs to be paid off. And in the next election, yeah, maybe some more Republicans will win than Democrats and the Democrats will pretend to be very, very sad, even though the Republicans who won are also members of the Uniparty and their power will still be set in forever. But that's not where we are anymore. Now, the only option remaining is force and fear. And that, as Tucker said, is where things get dangerous. In the meantime, whatever personal decisions about the vaccine or COVID or how many masks you wear, if any, know what you're watching here. This is not a public health campaign designed to save you from a variant that has not killed a single confirmed American. Sorry, it's not. No. What is this? These are the muscle spasms of a dying political party. The people in charge are on their way out. Unfortunately, they can still hurt you. And exactly how they plan to do that is going to be the subject of Joe Biden's address to the nation this afternoon, where he is going to issue, in the words of Jen Psaki, a stark warning to the unvaccinated of America. He's going to tell us how bad we are and they're going to create all sorts of new restrictions, or at least they're going to try. This is going to be, I'm guessing, along the lines of what Joe Biden read to us on September 9th when he pretended to initiate a national vaccine mandate on private businesses. So far, that hasn't held up in court. Some people actually have lost their jobs because their businesses zealously attempted to enforce Biden's illegal mandate. But for the most part, that policy, like the rest of the Biden administration policies, has failed and collapsed and will not be enforced. Plenty of big companies are already rejecting it after multiple courts rejected it as well. And that process is still in motion. Eventually, it will be decided by the Supreme Court probably in a few weeks. But the sum total of what Joe Biden is about to tell us is going to be little more 
than a threat. And every threat he makes is less effective than the one before it. People are understanding that all of this is a mirage. Joe Biden has no actual power because the number of people who take the fake administration seriously dwindles by the day. And if you don't believe me, you really don't need to look any further for proof than the number of prominent House Democrats who are deciding that their political careers are over early rather than getting destroyed in the voting booth in November 2022. This is from Fox News today. California Democrat joins growing list of reps not running for re-election in 2022. This is Edmund DeMarsh. Representative Lucille Royball Allard from California became the latest House Democrat to announce she will not run for re-election in 2022 as the party works to keep its slim majority. Royball Allard, 80, said in a statement that the time has come for me to spend more time with my family. The Associated Press pointed out that her district seems to be headed for elimination as part of the state's once in a decade redrawing of congressional districts to account for population shifts. Her office did not immediately respond to an after hours email from Fox News. California is losing a congressional seat for the first time because other states are growing faster, dropping to 52 seats from 53, though it will remain the largest House delegation by far. And I don't know much about this woman, but I do know that it is about time we stop having a bunch of 80-year-olds holding so many political offices in our government. It is utterly insane. The Hill reported that 23 Democrats have indicated that they will not run for re-election compared to 13 Republicans. The GOP currently holds 213 seats in the House compared to 221 for Democrats. CNN reported Monday that the sentiment inside the Democrat caucus is that, quote, even more departures are likely. We have got a problem here. Representative Sherry Bustos from Illinois, who is retiring, told the network. There are way too many people serving as members of Congress right now who I not only don't look up to, I have zero respect for. And I'm saddened to have to say that. Fox News's Paul Steinhauser reported in May that Republicans controlled the House for eight years before losing the majority in 2018 during the Trump presidency. Although Republicans did not take back control of the House in 2020, they did better than expected and took a bite out of the Democrats' majority. Royball Allard's announcement came after Representative Stephanie Murphy from Florida announced that she will also retire after her current term and not seek reelection. She said her time in Congress has been the honor of her life, quote, but it's also been incredibly challenging for my family and me, end quote. The AP pointed out that the shifting boundaries in California may have played a role in the decision of other representatives, including representatives Devin Nunes and Alan Lowenthal, to leave their positions. And that's really strange. Devin Nunes is leaving his position to become CEO of Truth Social, which is Donald Trump's foray into social media. And Chris Saliza addressed the same issue over at CNN, where he wrote, Losing a member like Murphy, a prodigious fundraiser and a talented campaigner, is always a blow, but more so in an election like this one where Democrats are clinging to their majority. And, you know, it's kind of interesting that this is what he describes as Stephanie Murphy's benefit to the party and to the country. It's not about how much she has gotten done 
in her position as a congresswoman. It's about her being a prodigious fundraiser and talented campaigner. Now, first of all, if you are in the Democrat power structure and you are referred to as a prodigious fundraiser, what that means is that you are pleasing all of the corporate overlords and the members of the global communist power structure like George Soros. You are just given money to stay in office if you are committed to doing the things they want you to do. Being a talented campaigner, what does that mean? You get elected again and again as the benefit of election fraud? Are we supposed to take that at face value and assume that she really connects to her constituents? If that was true, why is she leaving as soon as the going gets tough? Assuming that in November 2022, the election fraud system can be rectified or overwhelmed, Republicans are going to take massive majorities in the House and the Senate. And there's little doubt of that. Right now, according to a Marist poll released yesterday, Joe Biden is at 29% approval among independents, with 66% disapproving. These are historically bad numbers. And anyone attached to Joe Biden, meaning every single Democrat, is staring at an absolutely massive loss. And that will be a good and necessary thing if you are interested in this country not completely collapsing as it is right now. But the other benefit of having Republicans in majorities in the House and Senate is that they take charge of all the committees and they can begin investigating all of the crimes that have been committed by this administration and by the Democrat Communist Party and the Uniparty over the last five or six years and truthfully much, much longer. This is from Just the News Today. From Fauci to Big Tech, GOP already has clear investigative targets if it wins back Congress. And this is by John Solomon. Ohio Republican Jim Jordan is the most likely candidate to take over the House Judiciary Committee if the GOP wins back Congress next year. Ask him what he wants to investigate and who he wants to subpoena, and he doesn't hesitate, not even for a second. Fauci, he told Just the News, referring to Dr. Anthony Fauci, the U.S. infectious disease specialist overseeing America's pandemic response. While the many conflicting messages and reversals of the pandemic response are ripe for investigation, Republicans like Jordan also want to press Fauci about why America was funding China's bat research on coronaviruses at the Wuhan Institute of Virology through a U.S. nonprofit called EcoHealth Alliance and why the NIH revived a dangerous form of experimentation known as gain of function in 2017. You know, Dr. Fauci knew on January 31st, 2020, that the COVID-19 outbreak most likely came from a lab, Jordan said during an interview with the John Solomon Reports podcast. He got an email from Dr. Christian Anderson, which said the virus looks engineered. The virus is not consistent with evolutionary theory. That is a fancy way of saying this thing came from the lab, and yet he misled us for over the last year saying, oh, no, 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 that's not the case. He got articles written and everything else, so we need to investigate that. Fauci disputes some of the Republican theories, but acknowledges the lab leak theory as a possibility, even as he and other NIH scientists still argue natural evolution is a more likely explanation for the COVID scourge the world now suffers. 
But Jordan knows there's a populist reason to dig into the China mess. The idea that we're funding, we're paying people in China to do this kind of research is frightening, he said. The 2022 midterm elections are still more than 10 months away and lots of history remains to be written. But President Joe Biden's rapidly falling popularity, the continuing inflation and COVID crisis, and a large number of Democrat incumbent retirements have Republicans scheming and dreaming about what they would investigate should they win the chairman's gavels. Axios reported Sunday that House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy is already planning to send document preservation orders to several Biden administration agencies to retain evidence for investigations. The news site suggested McCarthy has seven major investigations already planned. Jordan, as a likely chairman of the Maine Law Enforcement Oversight Committee, would oversee several of the probes. He told Just the News that in addition to Fauci's China connections, he'd also like to investigate Attorney General Merrick Garland's order asking the FBI to investigate parents as a domestic threat for protesting school board curriculum decisions and the continued censorship of Americans by big tech. On the latter, Jordan hopes to reform the Section 230 immunity from lawsuits many giants like Facebook, Google and Twitter currently enjoy. We've got to get to the bottom of the school board's issue, what the Justice Department is doing and how they're treating it, the Ohio Republican said. This threat tag label that we got from a whistleblower they're putting on parents is frightening as well. So those are some of the big investigations. And then, frankly, it's going to be tough to get anything passed into law, but we should still go ahead and pass it out of the House. And, you know, Joe Biden would veto it, but we need to pass Section 230 reform, which takes away the liability protection for these big tech platforms who always want to squelch and censor conservatives. McCarthy reportedly has several other targets, including the leak of a vast cache of IRS documents about billionaires to ProPublica, national security agencies, possible monitoring or unmasking of journalists like Fox News host Tucker Carlson, the record surge of illegal aliens crossing the U.S. southern border, The bungled withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan, including the stranding of Americans and Afghan supporters. The controversial Jedi cloud computing contract at the Pentagon that pits Microsoft against Jeff Bezos's Amazon cloud services. Many Republicans also believe a more thorough investigation into Hunter Biden's business deals and his father's knowledge of them is warranted. Senators Ron Johnson and Chuck Grassley completed a preliminary probe before the 2020 election. But there have been numerous revelations since many from a laptop Hunter Biden left at a computer repair shop, a device that is now in the FBI's hands. Peter Navarro, former President Donald Trump's trade and manufacturing advisor, said the laptop's revelations about the extent of the Biden family's business interests in China raise serious concerns about whether President Biden is too compromised to negotiate with Beijing. I think the laptop from hell, Hunter Biden's laptop from hell, Kind of is the big reveal, Navarro told Just the News. Hunter Biden is going over to communist China and leveraging the political fame of daddy there. Look, we don't have a China policy in the Biden administration. We simply have appeasement. Unless the illegitimate administration and the Democrat Communist Party figure out some sort of way to put Americans back to sleep, This is going to be a historic landslide election, not only over the Democrat Communist Party for the Republicans to move back into the majority, but also over rhino Republicans as the America First movement looks to wipe all of them out of office as well. And that is part of why Donald Trump has spent so much time 
vetting primary candidates to take these people out. And as the Fox News article noted, you already have 13 incumbent Republicans choosing not to run for reelection. And it's for exactly this reason. All of these people can say that they want to spend more time with their family until they're blue in the face. But they're retiring because their other option is getting blown out in their primaries. We are talking about a bunch of people who thought they would be reaping massive rewards from helping the globalists steal the American government from a duly elected president, elected twice, by the way. And instead, they find themselves as potential targets for congressional investigations. And this includes people like Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney, who sit right now on the sham January 6th commission. And they're getting exposed by the day as well. But they are pushing forward because truthfully, they have no choice. All of this stuff is an existential threat to all of these people. They have to make this insanity work or else they're simply finished. And they have committed a lot to the whole narrative about January 6th, even now while it falls apart. If you haven't read the latest piece from Darren Beatty at Revolver.News about Ray Epps and the other unindicted co-conspirators who are the key instigators of the violence and mayhem that took place at the Capitol on January 6th, you really, really should. Because there is little doubt at this point about the involvement of federal law enforcement in setting up and executing what we saw on TV on January 6th. And it turns out, like everything else, that the story is nowhere close to what we were shown on the news. That doesn't stop Nancy Pelosi and all these people from planning to attempt, at least, to convince Americans that what happened that day really was a very deadly insurrection. This is from the Washington Examiner in the afternoon yesterday, Ryan King. Pelosi announces plans for solemn observance on one year anniversary of January 6th Capitol riot. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi revealed plans for events to mark the one year anniversary of the January 6th Capitol riot. A letter to Democrat colleagues, which was shared with the media on Monday, asked members to report whether they will be in Washington on January 6th, as the House will not be in session that week, to help planners fully prepare for this solemn observance. Already, preparations are underway for a full program of events, including a discussion among historians about the narrative of that day, an opportunity for members to share their experiences and reflections from that day, and a prayerful vigil in the evening. Pelosi said, all events will be live streamed so that members can watch and participate from their districts. As always, we will continue to work with the House historian to establish and preserve our records in this regard, she added. The White House is also reportedly planning to commemorate the January 6th riot. A House select committee, which has two Republican members, is looking into the circumstances that surrounded January 6th, the day hundreds of people stormed into the U.S. Capitol complex, disrupting lawmakers as they certified President Joe Biden's 2020 win. So far, dozens of people have been subpoenaed and members say hundreds more have cooperated with the inquiry. Meanwhile, more than 700 people have been arrested and charged with crimes associated with the siege of Congress. The House is planning to be back in session on January 10th, following a break for the holidays. And so 
it's obvious that Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats want another bite at the narrative apple. They want that chance to convince Americans that January 6th was a very violent insurrection and the most horrific attack against America since 9-11 or Pearl Harbor or the Civil War. And of course, that entire time, they always make sure to leave out when the U.S. Capitol was actually bombed by the May 19th Communist Organization led by one Susan Rosenberg. And Susan Rosenberg, of course, is the woman who Bill Clinton pardoned on his final day in office. And now she sits on the executive board of a group called Thousand Currents, who act as the fiscal sponsor for Black Lives Matter, making sure that Black Lives Matter does not have to have their finances tracked or taxed. But that attack, that attack is already memory hold. So they don't need to bring that up. They're just going to retell the story they keep telling about January 6th that now virtually no one believes and even fewer people care about. And I wonder if all of their very serious historians might have something to say about the sort of societies that hold political prisoners for a year without charging them and subject them to truly heinous conditions in a Washington, D.C. jail. But Never mind. I'm just a conspiracy theorist. So here's another subject that might be worthy of investigation. This is an op-ed written for Fox News by former director of national intelligence in the Trump administration, John Ratcliffe and uh, Cliff Sims, who was deputy director of national intelligence for strategy and communications. The headline Wall Street and Silicon Valley must stop bankrolling communist China. We have achieved a rare moment of political consensus in Washington, D.C., that China and its ruling Chinese Communist Party pose the greatest threat to U.S. national security. However, Silicon Valley and Wall Street have continued fueling the rise of the CCP with massive investments and commitments to bolster China's economy, while eschewing their patriotic duty to take similar steps here at home. In the absence of moral courage from America's financial elite, we need a regulatory framework to protect our nation and its people from China's ambitions to subjugate the world to its authoritarian model and from the rise of American oligarchs who view themselves as citizens of the world rather than citizens of the country that made their success possible. In recent days, journalists uncovered that Apple CEO Tim Cook secretly struck a $275 billion deal with Chinese authorities promising Apple would do its part to develop China's economy and technological prowess through investments, business deals, and worker training. The socially conscious Mr. Cook once opined that, quote, human rights is about treating people with dignity and respect, end quote, and declared that Apple is, quote, about changing the world. And you don't do that by staying quiet on things that matter, end quote. But Mr. Cook and Apple have been conspicuously silent about the CCP's mass surveillance state and the ongoing genocide of Uyghurs in Xinjiang. In another example of the moral depravity of some American business tycoons, billionaire Ray Dalio dismissed a question about Beijing's human rights abuses by asking if he should also look at America's own human rights issues. He continued this absurd line of moral relativism by shrugging off China's policy of disappearing people who disagree with the regime, saying that is their approach. We have our approach. 
These two darlings of the American business world are emblematic of a broader sentiment in Silicon Valley and on Wall Street. They believe that doing business with the CCP simply means more opportunities for growth, or as Mr. Cook naively put it, world peace through world trade. However, while it is unreasonable to expect financiers and business leaders to play the role of morality police across the planet, China is a unique and undeniable case. The intelligence we consume daily in our roles in the U.S. government made it clear that the CCP is the only regime with both the intent and resources to destroy the American model of free people and fair trade that has proliferated around the world in recent decades, lifting billions of people out of poverty along the way. The U.S.-China conflict is at its core an ideological struggle. In 2013, shortly after Xi Jinping assumed his perch as Chinese dictator, CCP leadership was warned in a secret document of the perils that the party faces, including constitutional democracy, universal values, civil society, and the West's idea of journalism. The Cold War was also an ideological struggle, but the U.S. and global economies were not so intertwined with the USSR as they are with China. U.S. financial interests also were not funding the rise of our nemesis. It would have been unconscionable. But that is exactly what is happening with China, and not only among the business elite. Millions of Americans, often unknowingly, remain invested in index funds with Chinese holdings. And since there is no such thing as a truly private company in China, these investments are funding the CCP's human rights abuses at home and its economic, diplomatic, and military ambitions abroad. Even the Thrift Savings Plan, which houses the retirement investments of members of the U.S. Armed Forces, had to be shamed into rolling back a plan to invest in an index fund that included Chinese government-owned entities like Aviation Industry Corporation, the sole supplier of Chinese military aircraft. To put a finer point on it, if big money managers had gotten their way, American military personnel would have been unwittingly helping to finance the building of planes that could one day be used to attack them or U.S. interests. The flow of American capital into China's economy is becoming a serious national security issue for the United States, right alongside the CCP's mass theft of American intellectual property and technology. And as the Wall Street Journal editorial board recently warned, if U.S. business titans continue conveying contempt for America's system of government, then voters will curtail their prerogatives through the political process. Elected leaders should consider what policy tools are at their disposal to prevent wealthy and powerful American financiers and corporations from trading away our way of life in exchange for access to slave labor and a billion new consumers. For example, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States exists to review certain foreign investments in the U.S. to determine the effect they might have on our national security. We do not, however, have a similar framework for U.S. investments flowing out to China, but it is worth strong consideration. There are many differences between the Cold War of the 1980s and the current U.S.-China dynamic. But one thing we could undoubtedly use from that era is the clarity that President Ronald Reagan provided when he declared, here's my strategy. We win, they lose. We need that kind of forthrightness from our political leaders, but we also need it from our financial powerhouses. Because our response to China cannot be just whole of government. Paradoxically, in this one instance, our approach must be more like China's approach to the United States. It must be whole of society. And they are correct, of course, but this is one more area where our country has been weakened by the fake administration, who is, no doubt, fully compromised by the Chinese Communist Party. Donald Trump, 
was actually handling China effectively. And his plan in the long run was to decouple from China completely to bring American manufacturing back to America's shores. He was going to bring pharmaceutical manufacturing to Puerto Rico, actually, which would have done incredible things for Puerto Rico and its economy. But of course, Joe Biden is not going to do any of those things and bringing American manufacturing back to America, decoupling from China is antithetical to the global communists reset agenda. Now, Joe Biden just finished giving his stark warning to the unvaccinated, and it was not really a stark warning at all. He repeated a bunch of nonsense over and over and over and over again about how the unvaccinated are causing a threat to everyone around them. Their choice to remain unvaccinated is not only putting them in danger, it's putting everybody else in danger. Meanwhile, the vaccinated are totally safe from the Omicron variant. They might get sick, but they're protected from serious illness and hospitalization and death, even though that's not true. They are no more protected than anyone else. And the Omicron variant is not responsible for hospitalizations and deaths to this point. It has now been nearly four weeks since they announced the presence of this variant. And of course, the variant was already around in Botswana and other parts of Southern Africa before then. But, you know, things only start when the media tells us they start. So in terms of that, four weeks, the Omicron variant is now responsible for most of the cases in the UK, and they're telling us it's responsible for most of the cases in the US. And around the world, there have been no deaths as a result of the Omicron variant, though people have died with it. And for a variant that we are told by our betters like Joe Biden is going to be most dangerous to the unvaccinated, we still have no sign of danger to either the vaccinated or the unvaccinated because there are almost no hospitalizations due to Omicron and no deaths. There was almost nothing in that speech that was newsworthy, aside from the fact that he was lying constantly about everything. But that's not newsworthy in the context of today's mainstream media landscape. I'm going to play a little clip to kind of give you an idea what the general feel was. If your children are not vaccinated, please get them vaccinated. If you're a parent, understandably, who waited to see how the first shots went with other kids before getting your own kid vaccinated, you can stop waiting. Six million children in our country, ages five to 11, are vaccinated. Get your children protected today, now. For those parents out there who have a child that's too young to be vaccinated, that is under the age of five, I know this can still be a scary time. But one thing, one thing you can and must do while we await vaccines for children under five, get yourself fully vaccinated and boosted, as well as those around you, your children, your caregivers, your siblings. It's critical to mask up in public indoor places. We know that our youngest children have only rarely been impacted by serious COVID cases, uh, COVID-19 cases. 
but they can be further protected if they're surrounded by vaccinated people. And again, to folks who are not vaccinated, you may think you're putting only yourself at risk. But it's your choice. Your choice is not just a choice about you. It affects other people. You're putting other people at risk. Your loved ones, your friends, neighbors, strangers you run into. And your choice can be the difference between life or death. The longer the virus is around, the more likely variants form. It may be deadlier than the ones that have come before. Let me say again and again and again and again, please get vaccinated. It's the only responsible thing to do. Those who are not vaccinated are causing hospitals to overrun, become overrun again. I just spoke to the governor of New York. Every COVID-19 hospital means someone with a heart attack, cancer, or other serious illness may not get that bed and that life-saving care they need in the hospital. Look, let me give it to you straight again. Omicron is serious, potentially deadly business for unvaccinated people. Let me be clear. Thanks to the prior administration and our scientific community, America is one of the first countries to get the vaccine. I mean, maybe six months ago, people might have taken that seriously and thought of this as a stark warning that you had to get vaccinated or else take on the moral responsibility of everyone dying from COVID, I guess. I don't know. I, 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 am, I was dumbfounded watching this speech because there really wasn't much there at all. You know, we were told there would be a stark warning. We were told that there would be new policy, maybe travel restrictions, but there was none of that. It was just a bunch of nonsense about how everybody needs to get vaccinated. And apparently now we are putting tiny children in danger, even though we're not around any tiny children. And no matter what, they are not in danger. He's basically just out there shilling vaccines. Perhaps they think this is going to work on the people that have already gone out and gotten their boosters. This will give them that kind of moral drive that they really love, that gives them the incentive to go out and cast aspersions on unvaccinated people. Maybe that's what this speech is for. I'm not sure what else it's for. The only thing that he mentioned, and he mentioned it twice, that seems to be a progression of the authoritarian COVID response is the introduction of new FEMA facilities, which he described as pop-up vaccination sites and then hospital overflow, like emergency hospitals that FEMA sets up. And here is where he mentions that the second time. Send them immediately to any state that needs more. In addition, I've directed the Pentagon to mobilize an additional 1,000 troops to be deployed to help staff local hospitals and expand capacity. That's 1,000 military doctors, nurses, and medics. We've already started moving military, excuse me, medical teams. They've already landed in Wisconsin, Indiana this week. This is on top of 300 federal medical personnel that are now on the ground, having deployed since we learned about Omicron. Look, 
While we know staffing is the biggest need for hospitals, some may need more beds as well. We're prepared. I've directed FEMA to activate the National Response Center and begin deploying teams now to provide additional hospital beds. We'll begin to construct emergency capacities near hospitals and parking garages and nearby buildings to be ready if needed. And the federal, the federal government is paying for all of this, period, all of it. Further, FEMA will deploy hundreds of ambulances and EMS crews so that if one hospital fills up, we can transport patients to beds elsewhere. This week, we'll send dozens of ambulances to New York and Maine because, of, because the COVID is spreading very rapidly to help transport patients. Our doctors, nurses, hospital staffs have gone above and beyond during this pandemic. The strain and stress is real. I really mean it. It's real. And we'll have their backs, though. We have to let them know we have their backs. So I guess we'll see over the next few days, maybe next couple of weeks, what exactly is going on with this. There's no indication anywhere in the country that hospitals are in danger of being overwhelmed with COVID patients or anything else. In the cases where hospital capacity becomes challenging, it's always and has always been because they have reduced capacity. We are, again, currently dealing with a variant that is essentially an average cold. And there's no reason to assume it's going to become anything more than that. And so after his virtually completely pointless speech, he decided that he was going to take some questions. And he did note during the question period that he was not supposed to be doing it. And the fake president's press conferences are always just so much more entertaining when he improvises. You know that at some point he's going to bring out the yell. Prices going up, et cetera. But look what's in look look what's in Build Back Better. Childcare. You can reduce it by up to seventy percent. That'll be the difference between twenty million women who go on back in the workforce being able to go back if you pass it. We're talking about we're talking about health care, insulin. And I said we got we got two hundred thousand kids with type one diabetes. You know what it's costing? It costs somewhere between ten cents and ten dollars to come up with a formula. Okay, a while ago. Right? You know what it's costing on average? $560 or $640 a month, up to $1,000 a month. What do you do if you're a mom and a dad working with minimum wage, busting your neck? You look at your kid, and you know if you don't get that vaccine for him, or that, excuse me, if you don't get that drug for him, if you don't get that, 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 that be, be able to take that, what happens? Otherwise, he's going to a coma, maybe die. Not only do you put the kid's life at stake, you strip away all the dignity of a parent looking at their child. I'm not joking about this. Imagine being a parent looking at a child and you can't afford. You have no house to borrow against. You have no savings. It's wrong. But all the things in that bill are going to reduce prices. Now, there's the demented, raging dictator 
we've all come to expect. Joe Biden just issued a stark warning to people who make insulin expensive, I guess, and don't want the Build Back Better agenda. And the insulin thing is kind of Biden's fault, so I'm not sure who he's getting mad at. That whole exercise, bringing him out to speak to the public, that was as weird as it gets. Now, finally, I just want to leave you with a really incredible article written in the communist propaganda rag, The Atlantic, today by a guy named Ed Yong. And when I talk about child brains, this is what I mean, okay? He wrote an article called, I canceled my birthday party because of Omicron. If you just imagine all of these elitist bloggers as teenagers in high school, what they're doing begins to make a lot more sense. And listen to how he reasons his way through all of this. I turned 40 today, and I was planning to have a party. The Delta surge made me nervous about it. The arrival of Omicron made me cancel it. The plan was to have an extended house party with a couple dozen people popping by over the weekend. On the one hand, it would have been an unmasked indoor event, the kind in which the coronavirus in all its incarnations spreads most easily. On the other hand, everyone who was going to be there is fully vaccinated and most of them, myself included, have been boosted. A month ago, I would have felt comfortable about that trade-off, especially if people got tested in the preceding days, as eight friends did when they came over for Thanksgiving. Omicron didn't shift much the way I weighed my personal risk. Although the new variant can evade some of our immune defenses, early data suggests that boosted people are roughly as protected against Omicron infection as people with two vaccine doses are against Delta. What? Early data suggests that boosted people are roughly as protected against Omicron infection as people with two vaccine doses are against Delta. There is no data that suggests vaccinated people are protected against infection anywhere. All the data coming out of Europe shows that vaccinated people are more likely to get sick. That protection isn't foolproof, but even if immune systems can't block the virus from gaining an initial foothold, they should still be able to stop it from causing too much damage. If I got the virus on my birthday, I'd expect to be knocked down for a time, but okay by Christmas. And I'd expect the same to be true for everyone who was meant to come. And this article is from the 17th, so I guess he was leaving eight days for full recovery from the very scary variant which would kind of imply that somewhere deep down, he knows it's not that bad if you get it. If someone got sick, I know others could too. A week later, many of my friends will spend Christmas with their own families. At best, a cluster of infections at the birthday party would derail those plans, creating days of anxious quarantine or isolation and forcing the people I love to spend time away from their loved ones. At worst, people might unknowingly carry the virus to their respective families, which might include elderly, immunocompromised, unvaccinated, partially vaccinated, or otherwise vulnerable people. Being born eight days before Christmas creates almost the perfect conditions for one potential super spreader event to set off many more. Yes, Ed Yong, 
the entire world revolves around your COVID status. My friends, of course, are adults who can make informed decisions about their own risks and their own loved ones' risks, except if they decide not to get the vaccine. But the logic of personal responsibility only goes so far. Omicron is spreading so rapidly that if someone got infected at my party, my decision to host it could easily affect people who don't know me and who had no say in the risks that I unwittingly imposed upon them. Omicron is unlikely to land me in the hospital, but it could send my guests, grandparents or parents to one. And this guy's like a superhero, honestly, just through the goodness and morality that he exhibits. He is able to save all these people all over the place. I know the state of those hospitals over the past two years, especially while I was reporting a new article last month. Hundreds of nurses, doctors, and other healthcare workers have told me that they and the system they work in are utterly broken. Some have quit jobs or careers they thought they would keep for life. Others spoke of a system in the midst of collapse in which the dwindling workforce can no longer provide a normal level of care for its growing pool of patients. Not just COVID patients, but all patients. Several said they're struggling to hold on to empathy for people who are putting themselves at risk. Many cried on the phone during our interview. Many just sounded hollow. I feel haunted by their words when I make decisions about the pandemic. When I stare out my window, the world looks normal, but I know through my reporting it is not. This has already changed the way I behave and not just to avoid getting COVID. I've been trying to drive more carefully in the knowledge that if I got into an accident, I wouldn't get the same care that I would have two years ago. I feel that the medical system in this country is at a tipping point, a fragile vase being balanced so precariously on an edge that even a fly could knock it over. <laughs> he honestly writes like a teenager too. This is just pathetic. Omicron is a bullet, <laughs> a bullet. It's like a, uh, a bullet that rather than kills you, just gives you herd immunity. It's one that we can each choose whether to fire. Oh yes. Whether or not you have Omicron, if you have a birthday party, you are choosing to fire the Omicron bullet at everybody who's there Everybody they might see and everybody those people might see. In truth, you're firing an Omicron bullet at absolutely everybody. It's like you have an Omicron machine gun and you're just spraying bullets everywhere. But thank goodness, masks will prevent bullets. I sympathize with those arguments, but I've tried to take heart at the lesson I keep writing about, that the pandemic is a collective problem that cannot be solved if people or governments act in their own self-interest. You got that? The only solution is a collective solution. You have to do whatever the community says, and you're not going to poll the community and find out what everyone in the community actually believes. No, you are going to turn to people who tell you they are experts and they will accept the power and the responsibility to tell you exactly what to do and you have to do it. I've tried to consider how my actions cascade to affect those with less privilege, immune or otherwise. Instead of asking, what's my risk? I've tried to ask, what's my contribution to everyone's risk? I've done things that personally inconvenience me to avoid contributing to the much greater societal inconvenience of, say, a collapsed healthcare system. 
I still mask indoors. I still eat outdoors at restaurants. I still avoid large gatherings. I'm still writing articles that take a toll on my own resilience to help our readers make sense of a crisis that I desperately want to never think about again. I've tried to put we over me. Imagine, imagine being this self-involved. A birthday party is almost the antithesis of that ethic, an asymmetric gathering in which we celebrate me. I talked with my wife, Liz, and two of my colleagues about ways of mitigating the risks. Could we ask people to do a rapid test just before coming? But ultimately, simply canceling felt easier and safer. The growing number of anecdotes about outbreaks within boosted parties has only made me feel more confident about that choice. These decisions are hard. Plans and hopes have their own inertia, and canceling things is a pain. A birthday party isn't ultimately a big deal, but I'm still sad about not seeing my friends, and a celebration would certainly have improved my fraying mental health. Got that? This writer, who writes for The Atlantic, is so shell-shocked by his own fear that he is now boldly advertising his fraying mental health in an article that he wrote to extol his own personal virtue that he exhibited for the world by canceling his birthday party. Those trade-offs, which we've been asked to make for almost two years now, have an erosive power as they add up. Man, Your wife, Liz, must be so proud of you. Our Christmas will also be quiet. I don't know how to think about everyone else's. For two straight years, America's leaders have largely punted the responsibility for controlling the pandemic to individuals. And now Omicron leaves said people with few options beyond boosting, masking, and the one nobody wants to hear, avoiding social gatherings. If people really hunker down over the next week, eschewing the kinds of exposures that they would have felt comfortable with a mere month ago, they might be in a more secure position to gather by Christmas. But as my colleague Ian Bogost has written, to have to wrangle with these choices again, just as the holiday season begins, feels like a cruel joke. It is easy to despair, but we cannot afford the luxury of nihilism. Grim, though the stories I've written may be, I have tried to infuse everyone with some hope, with the acknowledgement that a better future is at least possible, if not probable. And despite everything I firmly believe that it is, failed systems constrain us, but we still have agency and our small choices matter immensely. The infectious nature of a virus means that a tiny bad decision can cause exponential harm but also that a tiny wise decision can do exponential good. This time last year with effective vaccines and a new administration on the horizon, I tweeted that I was gently hopeful about being able to have a party. That wasn't to be. But canceling doesn't mean that I can't have a joyful weekend or that I can't have a party again or even a 40th birthday party again. Yes, yes, someday you can have a 40th birthday party again. 
I can imagine reviving the idea if transmission falls back to a gentle simmer. The cost of waiting for such a moment feels low, and certainly much lower than the consequences of reckless impatience. And I know, despite the relentless nature of the past two years, that pandemics do eventually end. Yeah, Ed, you know how pandemics end? Through herd immunity, you jackass. So how about instead of boosting and masking, both of which are proven to do absolutely nothing, you just go ahead and accept the cold and all of the responsibility that goes with it. And the amount of responsibility that goes with it is actually zero responsibility, Ed. You just get a cold and then you get over it. And then you stop writing this column over and over and over again. Okay. The world already knows that you are one of the biggest pussies to ever exist. And that's the real takeaway here. Okay. This right here, this is the example of the people who are on the other side from us. All right. These people and people that read these people, these are the people attempting to exert control over an entire society. Yes, some of them are more powerful than Ed Yong. And Ed Yong is probably not as evil as them, but he's well on the path. Ed Yong is mostly a useful idiot. And certainly some of the people that he aligns with are not useful idiots. They are the ones who are setting the plan in place that the useful idiots just dutifully repeat and execute and enforce those plans on other people. But without the Ed Yongs of the world, those evil global communists who are putting all of this plan in motion, they don't have any power because they need these people. They need people to listen to them and tell everyone else that all of it really is smart and it really will yield a better world for all of us. But it's not true. And it was never going to be true. And what we need to be sure we are all doing is ignoring the advice of people like Ed Yong and making fun of them at every possible opportunity. I will be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. Goodbye. Whether you're a total newbie to podcasting or even if you've had a show before like me, you know how intimidating it can be to start your show. The tech side especially can be daunting. That's why I'm so grateful Anchor exists. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. They knock down all the barriers to entry. Let me explain. First off, it's free. I don't know how or why, but I'm happy about it. The platform's great. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. I can't even begin to describe how much easier it was to get my show on all the major platforms this time than it was a few years ago. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. That's right. You build your show, you make money. 
It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, and the company is committed to the success of its content creators. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks for listening. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator. You can join the discussion at t.me slash I'm reasonable. I'm also on Gab and Getter at I'm your moderator. The Substack is I'm your moderator and the merch site is cancelcouture.com. You can also go direct to that at shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. I'll see you next time out on the range. as moderator for tonight's broadcast. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble, and bit shoot. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!